to outside of the church. Um, some of them are within the church as well. Um, Faith Academy has been the recipient of these in the past. Uh, Choices Medical Clinic, Global Workers Team. Um, even just the fund that we have established so that we can meet and cover expenses here at Parkview East have kind of come out of this as well. Um, and so we, we did that. I believe it was it last week was the first week or maybe the week before that, two weeks now. Uh, but really after one week of giving, I'm just going to read for you the total that has come in just in that one week. And this is between Parkview East and the Central Campus. And one week we saw $278,138 come in. So that is, that is awesome. Um, just to put that into perspective, last year after one um, week of giving, the total was $103,000. And so more than double that. Now, a reminder that this goes um, until the end of the year. And so if you have not given to the Thanksgiving offering, um, you can do that you know, anytime now until the end of the year is when they'll kind of close the books. And so we just expect to see, honestly, that number even go up. So that's an awesome praise because all the targets, the amounts that we had wanted to give and bless these different groups um, have been met and there's money to spare yet. And so to be able to, to continue to bless others as well. So um, huge praise. Uh, we are walking through the book of Mark as a church, and so um, Christmas is upon us. Um, the next three weeks, we will spend looking specifically in the epistles, and we'll be learning about Jesus' birth and what it means for us. And so the kind of the Christmas thing will start next week. This is the last week that we're going to do before that in the book of Mark, and then we'll pick up again after the first of the year. And so I would, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, we're going to be looking specifically at verses 27 through 38. Um, 9, just so you know, chapter 9 verse 1 is oftentimes put in this chunk of verses, but I'm going to save that verse for the next um, when we talk about the transfiguration because I think it, it fits there and it's probably best explained there. Um, so we'll be looking at... Mark 8, 27 through 38. Before we do that, before I read the passage, I just want to say a quick thing. As we have been in this journey looking at the book of Mark, we've been learning about the life of Christ. And there have been some awesome things that we have talked about, that we have read and discovered about Jesus. And if you're sitting here and you're reading these things, these would be things that would really draw you to him, right? The idea that Jesus went around and, and healed the sick. That, that he was near to the brokenhearted, to the rejected, to the Gentiles, like we, we talked about last week. Those who were outside of the covenant, Jesus went to them. Those who, who were outside on the margins of society, Jesus loved them and sought them out. That's an awesome thing. That, that personally, for me, that draws me to Jesus, to see him be with the oppressed, with the sick. He walked on water. We talked about how he could calm storms, right? And how he can do that not just physically in the universe, but also spiritually in your life and in my life. These are things that should draw us to Jesus, that honestly should make us just fall in love with who Jesus is. But there are other aspects of Jesus of following Jesus that maybe don't make us feel so warm and fuzzy. You know what I'm talking about? There are parts of following Jesus, aspects of the life of a Christian that honestly, for some of us, for myself included, can be difficult pills to swallow. They can be hard things. And this morning's passage is a difficult passage. As we read it, and we examine it and look at what it costs Jesus to live and do his thing and then apply it to our lives. 
if I do this right, if we're reading this passage right, it should be a hard passage to navigate. Now, a temptation could be to stand up here and to try and make it easy, to try and make it make you comfortable, okay? I'm going to try every ounce of energy I have to avoid that temptation because Jesus avoided that temptation, okay? So my prayer this morning is that we're going to be faithful to this text and that we'll walk away today, and some of us may feel uncomfortable. And, and I think that's okay. I think that's a good place to be. So Mark chapter 8. Verse 27, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. Father God, I pray um, just right now as we examine these words, your words, Father, I pray that you would help us to be able to see the truth in them, Father, and I pray that you would give us the grace today of measuring our life next to them. Lord, I pray that, that as we walk through this passage, Father, I pray that, um, Lord, that your spirit would be in this place, would speak through me into the hearts of your people now. Lord, I pray that the result would be obedience to you. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. A number of years ago, uh, maybe five or six years ago, uh, we went with Jason. Jason was here, and he taught uh, maybe a month or two ago. And he, has, uh, he was shooting a video for a new song that he had just released. And so we thought, oh, this would be a great opportunity for us to take some kids from the spot um, on a little bit of a road trip and go to this video shoot. They could be a part of the video. It was fun. It was, it was a fun time. I think it was in Cleveland. And so it was a long drive, and uh, we got this hotel reserved. 
And, you know, part of, you know, if you're like me, you know, when you get a hotel, you make sure that there's breakfast included, okay? Like, that's, that's a non-negotiable, right? Got to make sure that breakfast is there. So, found a hotel that included breakfast, and anyways, we stayed, we stayed there one night, had a good time. Woke up the next morning, went down to the lobby, and I began to look for the breakfast. And I went to the front desk, and I said, where, where is the, the breakfast for the hotel? Where's it at? I couldn't find it. And she said, well, it's, it's right through those doors, and around the corner, you'll find the breakfast, Fantastic. So I, I headed through the doors, went around the corner, and then there was this beautiful room set up, and there was this massive buffet of just everything under the sun that you could imagine. It was glorious. Like, I, I was in a little bit of shock. Like, for the price I paid, this is, this is awesome. Like, I wasn't expecting this. Okay. So I, I, you know, get my plate. I sit down. Somebody comes over. Can I get you something to drink, sir? I said, oh, yeah, absolutely. Do you have some grapefruit juice? Oh, yes. Brought me some grapefruit juice. And then after about... 15 or 20 minutes of being there. I mean, bacon was like falling from the ceiling, okay? It was that good. I don't think you understand how awesome this was. I don't really don't experience these things. So it was, it was fantastic. And after about 15 or 20 minutes of sitting there eating breakfast, two or three young men from, you know, our group um, discovered it as well. And they saw me sitting there and they joined me and they got something to drink. And for about a half an hour, we just sat there and ate and ate and ate. Um, and then, at the, at, towards the end of our dining experience, um, it, the waitress came back to our table and said, okay, do you guys want anything else? No, 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 we're good. Thank you. This is awesome. She's like, well, here's the bill. You can give it to us when you're ready, you know? So we were not expecting that, okay? And so you could just imagine, like, Bill, this is, I mean, instantly we were shocked, okay? And we looked at the bill and we got even more shocked because it was a big bill, okay? Not a fun experience, okay? We had been totally duped, right, into believing there was going to be this free breakfast. And what we found out was at that hotel, breakfast came with a cost. It had a price to it. It had a price to it, unfortunately. As we look at this passage this morning, the big idea, the main point of this passage is simply this. There is no true confession in Christ apart from the cross of Christ. There is no true confession. You, you cannot confess Christ, that you are a follower of Jesus. You cannot embrace that confession apart from the cross. Impossible. You cannot do it. So as we look at this passage, really we see it break down into three chunks. The three chunks that it breaks down is first the confession in Christ, and then we see the, the cross of Christ, and then we see the cross of the Christian. Those are kind of the three main sections that we'll walk through. I want to take the first part of that big idea that there's no true confession in Christ and just talk about what that means. Okay, now this very idea that there is a true confession of Christ flies in the face. It is an offense to American culture. I'm just going to put it out there right away. It is an offense to our culture that there is a way that is true. When you confess Jesus, it is, there's truth. There's a way that it looks. 
okay? And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, I cannot overemphasize the importance of this question. It is extremely important. Who is Jesus? Everything in your life, in eternity, is determined by how you answer this question. There is no greater question you need to answer than who is Jesus. The very fact that Jesus asks this question shows that he is looking for an answer. There are many wrong ways to answer the question, who is Jesus? And there is one true way to answer the question, who is Jesus? He's not asking, who is Jesus to you? He's not asking, who do you want Jesus to be? There is a proper way to answer the question. It's a popular concept in our day that truth is relative to you. That your life, your preferences, your background, your circumstances determine your truth. Jesus confronts that in this passage. There is a right way to answer the question, and there's many wrong ways to answer the question. See, what Jesus is really wanting to know is, is what the disciples think of him. And so he starts by kind of asking, well, what's the word on the street? What do other people think about me? What's the word on the street? See, the issue of Jesus' identity has been the subtext throughout Mark. From the first chapter and the first verse all the way to chapter 8, it has been the subtext throughout the book. Jesus, in a sense, has been chapter by chapter, verse by verse, parable by parable, miracle by miracle, on a mission to reveal his true identity to the crowds and to the disciples. His identity is the theme throughout Mark 1 through 8. Do they understand? Jesus has been revealing it uh, through his words and through his deeds. Do the disciples now understand? Are they getting it? That's the question. We know that the demons recognize who Jesus is. We know that the wind and the waves, they recognize who Jesus is. But who do the people say that I am? And they told him, well, John the Baptist, others say Elijah the prophet, or, or one of the prophet, prophets. Popular opinion was that Jesus was one of Israel's great prophets. And by placing Jesus in the company of these great prophets of the faith is to recognize that Jesus is special. For, for the people to recognize Jesus' power, his authority, and to place him with these prophets is to say Jesus is a special, special man, but it's not enough. It is not enough to simply say Jesus is special. He, to recognize his power and his miracles and the power in his teaching or, or his compassion or his justice, it is truth. It is wonderful truth, but it's not the whole truth. And so he asked them, but who do you say that I am. So he, he steers the question now, directs it at the hearts of the disciples. Who do you say that I am? And, and Peter, we're told, steps up. Remember that this is Mark's gospel, but really what Mark is doing is he's giving Peter's account. Okay? Peter 
was the one who told these words to Mark, and Mark is writing them down. So in many ways, this book of Mark is like Peter's gospel. It's his, his testimony of spending time with Jesus. And so Peter steps up and he speaks on behalf of the disciples, and he answers him saying, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. See, you would think, it appears that Peter passed the test. Jesus is the anointed one, the passage from Daniel that Jeremy read earlier. He is the one that people have been long waiting been waiting for his arrival, the superhuman leader who would overthrow Israel's enemies, assume the royal throne, and gather all of God's people, making Jerusalem the center of the world. He was the one. Peter got it. The one that the Old Testament had prophesied, say, all the way back from Genesis, all throughout the Old Testament, one is coming, an anointed one, a special one. Is coming. Peter understands this Christ that we heard all the way back in Mark chapter 1. This Christ, Jesus, is him. He's the one they've been waiting for. All their political aspirations are coming to fruition. Says uh, There's a, a famous theologian, Lorraine Bettner, who wrote, In all of history of the world, Jesus emerges as the only expected person. No one was looking for such a person as Julius Caesar or Napoleon or Washington or Lincoln to appear at the time or place that they did appear. No other person has had his course foretold or his work laid out for him centuries before he was born. But the coming of the Messiah had been predicted for centuries. In fact, the first promise of his coming was given to Adam and Eve soon after their fall into sin. As time went on, various details concerning his person and work would be revealed through the prophets. And at the time Jesus was born, there was a general expectation through the Jewish world that the Messiah was soon to appear, even the manner of his birth and the town in which it would occur, having been clearly indicated. Jesus emerges throughout human history as the only expected one. They were anticipating, waiting his arrival. But at the same time, Jesus is not the Messiah of the standard, common Jewish expectations. He has not come in, as, to establish an earthly kingdom with Jerusalem as the capital, defeating Israel's enemies and purging the land of Gentiles. That was the expectation. What Jesus tells them is about to tell them that, that they may have been expecting a Christ and seeing Christ in him, but they did not fully understand who the Christ was. See, the difference, what is the difference between their expectations and reality of who Jesus was? The, the difference between their misguided expectations and who Jesus came to be. What's the difference? Two words. The cross. The cross. That was what was different. They expected him to come in royalty and to reign on earth. And Jesus completely shatters, is about to completely shatter their expectations. The cross and the Christ moves on to the next section. Now, just to give you a feel, like, could you imagine 
if I were to walk up here this morning and, and tell you about how awesome, you know, a few people already asked, how's your weekend? And go, oh, it's a good weekend. Could you imagine if I were to walk up in here this morning and, and stand here before you and, and tell you how awesome my weekend was, that we spent all of yesterday at the White Barn Candle Factory and hours from one candle to the next, just taking it all. It was an, an exquisite time. Could, could you imagine? I mean, I don't want to knock on candles, but could you imagine if I did that? Or let's say I showed up here real tired this morning and said, oh, Doug, why are you so tired? Well, I spent all night last night on Pinterest looking for Christmas crafts, right? You, you would not expect that, rightfully so, okay? I would shatter your expectations if I stood before you this morning and said one of those two things, right? Yes, I would. Sh now, again, no, no, no shame in the game, Pinterest, white barn, whatever. Do your thing, okay? This is not my lifestyle. I ain't into that, okay? It would be radically, should be stunning, okay? What Jesus is about to tell the disciples, this stunning prediction is going to be a very Difficult. All of their political, social hopes and aspirations have been laid on the shoulders of their perception of who Jesus was going to be. Jesus is going to shake their world up in the next few verses. Completely change it up. Now, this is the first of three predictions that we will see in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus tells his disciples in detail what he is going to Jerusalem, that he will be going to Jerusalem to be killed and to rise from the dead. I'm going to read the other two real quick. Mark, the other one's in Mark 9, 31. He was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. The third one's found in Mark 10, 33 through 34. See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. The first phrase that we see here is that he began to teach them these things. He, he's beginning to, to reveal God's plan to the disciples. Chapter 8 is the pivot. Up until this point, if there was a word that we could say over and over that we're reading in the book of Mark, it would be the word immediately. Because Jesus goes, Mark goes from one story to the next. Immediately Jesus did this. Immediately Jesus did that. Immediately this happens. It's a fast-paced gospel. In Mark chapter 8, the entire book slows down. As Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem, as he makes his way to the cross, the book slows down. This is the turning point in the book. A, a popular author, Tim Keller, who wrote a book on the Gospel of Mark, basically uses two words, king and cross. The first part of Mark, we see that Jesus is king, an unparalleled, unmatched human being that walks on the face of the earth and has tremendous amount of power who reigns. He is king. What we will see for the next part of, book, of the book of Mark is that this kingdom comes with a cross. King's cross. This is the turning point in the gospel. 
The Son of Man must. What Jesus is about to endure is not, this is important, is not the unfortunate result of Judean Roman politics. It is Jesus is not simply the leader of a rebellion that gets squashed by the government. He is not simply a victim. Okay? This is God's plan. He must. Jesus came to the earth with a mission. And that mission includes the cross. If he is to accomplish this mission, God sent Jesus to die on the cross. It was a part of his mission. He is not simply the victim of a corrupt government. This is the plan of God. He describes this mission in four, with four verbs. He will suffer. Jesus will feel pain. Physical violence will be unleashed against him. It will be difficult. Jesus will be rejected. The very people who he came to save in John 1.1, we learn that his own people will not receive him. They will reject him. He will be rejected. Where the crowds at one point were coming to watch and take in the miracle and to be wowed by him, they will cast him outside of the city. They will mock him. They will send her insults and spit in his face. He will be rejected. He won't be accepted. He will be killed. The suffering and rejection will lead to the ultimate punishment, that of death, execution. And like the two other passion predictions, this one ends with a prophecy of his resurrection. That the cross will lead to his death and the death will lead to life. There's a rhythm that he is establishing. Jesus, it says, spoke this plainly to his disciples. I love this about Jesus. He's not mincing his words here. For the first time in the gospel, Jesus is speaking. When he starts speaking about the cross, he speaks with absolute clarity. He is completely clear, crystal clear. The question I would ask is, do we do this today? Do we, when we talk about Jesus and Christianity, do we do this today? It's, it's funny that, it's interesting to me that this falls right on the heels of Peter's confession. Right on the heels, immediately after Peter confesses who Jesus is. The first thing that Jesus talks about is the cross. I think we have a temptation for fear that people won't follow Jesus if they know anything about the suffering, the rejection, the pain, the death that it requires. If, if we keep that from people, then maybe they will follow Jesus, right? If, if we just put on a nice show, if we're all happy and friendly and we, we act like the Christian life is the good life, the happy life on earth, if, if we can do that, then we will convince people they too should follow Jesus, as soon as Peter confesses Christ, the first thing Jesus talks about is the cross. He plainly speaks that what you are about to do, what the life you are going to enter, will not be an easy one. And we do a disservice to others when we try to hide that part of reality and tuck it in some corner. Oh, we don't need to worry about that right now. Okay? Jesus speaks plainly about it. And as soon as Peter hears it, his first response is he rebukes Jesus. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, this shows us that Peter was really speaking for the group. He rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
So Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus says, I mean, it just went from being a really good day for Peter, like, yeah, you're the Christ, to a really bad day. It's, it's a bad day when Jesus calls you Satan, okay? I'm just saying. That's not something we're hoping for, okay? Jesus calls him Satan. Not good. Really up high, down low. Satan, Peter. You're Satan. Peter is advocating. So this, you might see this and think to yourself, okay, that seems a little extreme, Jesus. Like, just turn it down a little bit, calling your boy. This is like your number one man, calling him Satan. Like, come on, give him a break. He messed up. He got the question wrong. Come on, give him a break, right? Well, what is happening here, and this is really important to see, is that Peter is advocating that the coming of God's kingdom can happen without the cross. Peter is telling Jesus, we don't need the cross to do what you're going to do, okay? Now, if you think, why would he call him Satan? Well, because this is what Satan, this is the work of Satan himself, to remove the cross from Christianity, when, when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness back in early parts of Mark 1, this is what Satan told him. And listen, you, you could have all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give them to you now. Satan was trying to get the cross out of Jesus' path. When we see Jesus in the garden right before he goes to the cross, Satan, he is being tempted. He's sweating, he's sweating blood. He's praying because it's difficult, and this is a moment of temptation in the garden for Satan to obstruct the path that leads ultimately to the cross. This is the greatest thing that Satan wants to accomplish, not just for Jesus, but also for me and for you, to remove the cross from Christianity. This is Satan's business. It's a travesty, but unfortunately, we see movements, groups, calling themselves Christians today while they promote a crossless Christianity, a Christianity that involves no pain, that involves no suffering, that's all about happy feelings, no cross. The wilderness, Satan attacks him. On the road here to Jerusalem, Satan attacks him. In the garden before the cross, Satan attacks him. Anything to get the cross out of Christianity. Jesus is reshaping how the disciples are to view not just the world, but also their lives. Where the world around them promotes self and ambition, power and prestige, Jesus shows that in his kingdom, triumph comes through death. Victory is certain, but the road to it is filled with suffering, rejection, pain, in death. If we look at the next part, what happens here is that it's what should happen in the follow, every follower's life, that anybody who follows Jesus, Jesus' story, this, this pattern, this rhythm of death, pain, suffering, uh, rejection that ultimately leads to death and to resurrection, that pattern is now our pattern. Jesus' story becomes our story. The exact same rhythm that he walked, we as followers of him now have to walk. In Mark 2.14, Jesus extends the call to discipleship, but here in Mark 8, what we encounter with the disciples is that they learn that there is a cost of discipleship. And you can't separate the two. 
You cannot separate the two. Verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus calls the crowds to himself. This radical nature of discipleship is not exceptional. I think it's important for us all to note that. This is, he calls the crowds to himself in this, as he talks about the radical nature, the scandalous nature of the gospel and of discipleship, it is normal. This should be normal, not exceptional, not exceptional. This is not for super disciples, okay? This is not a lifestyle that he is, he is inviting people to that are going to be, you know, the saints, the people who, who really lay a foundation or, or those who are really gifted and especially called. This is the lifestyle of a disciple, period. Anybody who wants to follow him. So radical by world standards, it is a radical lifestyle. And he gives them three basic requirements. First, deny themselves. They must deny not only what the self wants, but the self itself. Conscious surrender, surrendering control over one's life to submission to Jesus. Taking up the cross, three requirements. The second one is taking up the cross. This is the first reference to the cross. Prisoners sentenced to death had to carry their device to the place of execution. And so he says, being a Christian, following in my footsteps means every day you put your cross on your shoulder and you die to yourself. That's what it means to carry the cross. And I think it's important um, that we understand that carrying the cross comes specifically from walking in Jesus' footsteps. Embracing weakness instead of power, humility instead of pride. There, there, is no, there is nothing that is more offensive to our culture, to our day, than this. Than, than discipleship and obedience to Jesus. Then he says, follow me. Stay the course, be determined, don't give up. So we see three requirements and there's four reasons. And then verse 35, 36, 37, and 38 really give, they each start, if you read those, you'll see each one of them starts with the word for. And really what he's doing here is showing these are reasons why. These are reasons why you need to die to yourself and take up the, the cross. What I wanted to do just real quick is, is the idea of dying to yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus is a foreign concept to unfortunately, not just our culture, but a lot of times, our church. And I don't mean like Parkview Church. I mean like the Western contemporary church. It, it is foreign. Um, you know, I've been reading, there's a, I was going to quote this book here in a few minutes, but this is a book called The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I first read this book when I was in college, and it was probably the turning point for me because in this book, The Cost of Discipleship, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer does is he speaks about this. Now, he was, wrote this in the early 1900s, um, and, and he, he talks about it in a way that when I read it in college, I had, to that point, never heard anybody talk about it before. And that's a travesty. It, it's a disservice to people to, to not prepare them or confront them with the degree of suffering and pain and rejection that should be in their life as a result of following Jesus. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, if you're familiar, I'm listening to his, it's interesting because I'm listening to his um, biography right now um, by Aaron McTaxis. It's a, one that I've had for years and I just haven't got a chance to read. And so I started listening to it just as I walked the dogs and um, an amazing life. If you do not know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor theologian in pre-Nazi Germany who eventually um, would confront the church of Germany and confront Nazism in the Third Reich itself and eventually be executed in a, in a concentration camp in Germany. And what's interesting about his life is that he grew up, as you listen to his life, he grew up with knowledge of the church. Like you listen to the way that it operated in his home. He had a foundation under his feet. Um, he understood the basics and at very age had a call to theology and a call to be a pastor. But, but in his biography, it wasn't until Dietrich Bonhoeffer spends a year, it's probably in his mid-20s in Harlem, going to Union Seminary. And while he's there at Union Seminary, this amazing thing, now this is, it blows my mind because he just left like pre-Nazi Germany where anti-Semitism is on the rise and is all over the place, and he comes to Harlem. And when he's at Harlem, he finds himself at the Abyssinian, some church in, in Harlem is a, a large African-American church, and it was in the context of that church, seeing the Jim Crow in its, you know, prime that he began to understand and connect these things. So he leaves pre-Nazi Germany, comes to Harlem, and that's where God shakes up his entire world. When he goes back, you listen to people give accounts of the life that he lived, and he lived radically different. And as, he, as he's confronting the rise of Nazism, as he's confronting this corrupt government and this horrible thing that could be no more antithetical thing to the gospel than what was happening in Germany at that time, Dietrich Bonhoeffer finds himself consumed with what we're talking about this morning, the cost of discipleship. And it was so rare for him. He was the only one talking about this stuff. And unfortunately, it's rare in our church today that following Jesus means carrying your cross. It means suffering. So just I want to leave us with four questions or four observations, that's to say. Why is it so rare? Why is it so rare in our church today? I want to just list off four reasons that I think there's many more. This is not an exhaustive list, but four reasons why I think it's rare. And, and maybe if you, if you don't recognize it in your life, maybe you can identify with one of these reasons. The first is because I think we wrongly equate life's normal challenges with carrying a cross. So when Jesus invites us to die, to step into suffering and persecution and rejection, he's not inviting us to a lifestyle where we have a hard time dealing with a boss. Okay, carrying a cross does not equal a difficult day at work. Car carrying a cross does not even equal struggling in a particular relationship. Carrying a cross is not suffering from sickness or from trauma. That's not what Jesus is referring to. Now, remember, Jesus is near to the brokenhearted, to those who have a life that maybe is just seems like one obstacle, one challenge after another. Jesus, Jesus loves you, and we've seen how, he, how he's close to those who are broken. But they're not what Jesus is referring to in this passage. Carrying a cross is the suffering, the rejection, the pain in life that comes from our allegiance to and our boldness in Christ. That's what it means. To, to, to give your allegiance to Jesus, to be bold in your proclamation of him, to stand up for him, and, and to watch difficulty come in your life as a result of that reality. I think... In our culture, we equate carrying a cross with 
bad day at work. It's not what Jesus means by it. Another reason, and I think sometimes this may be rare in church today, is that we are attempted to evaluate our walk with Jesus by comparing it with those around us. We're more concerned with being culturally consistent than biblically consistent. So, for example, if I want to think, okay, you know, is, am I living the right way? Am I living too radical, not radical enough? Instead of looking at the scripture and letting Jesus convict me of the truth, what I do is I, I take my head out of the Bible and I start looking at those around me. Okay, well, he drives this car, so I must be okay driving this car. Or she wears this kind of clothes, so it's okay for me to, to live like this and to, to buy clothes like that. It's okay because, because other people around me are doing that. So we compare ourselves to nominal Christianity rather than taking up the banner of radical Christianity, what is, is exactly what Jesus is calling us to. I think another reason is because oftentimes we confuse the American dream. This one might step on some toes, so... But okay, we had confused the American dream with the call of Christ. And the church is very guilty of this, saying that what it looks like to live a healthy, Christian, God-fearing lifestyle is equal to living the American dream, where you have hopes and dreams and you have success, and those, those rights and privileges are ones that you should have. And if you're faithful to Jesus, it looks like having a, a nice house with a wife and some kids and a dog and a white picket fence. That's what it should look like that we equate the call of following Jesus with the American dream. It ain't. If anything, it's completely opposite of the American dream. And the last one is that we have conveniently repositioned the cross in the life of the believer. So I just want to read just one quote from this, this book, and I think you'll understand what I mean by this last one, that we have repositioned where the cross is in the life of the believer. This is what Bonhoeffer says. He talks about the cost of discipleship. The cross is laid on every Christian. We've been talking about that today. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that of dying to the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ and union with his death. We give our lives to death. Thus it begins this is key. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning with our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be the death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world, but it is the same death Every time, death in Jesus Christ, death of the old man at his call. When Jesus calls us to him, he bids us come and die. All of Christian living every day is a day that we die to ourselves, so that, so that we can live in him, right? Ultimately, his cross, his death, his rejection, what did it lead to? Victory to life. 
Folks, following Jesus, you know, when he talks about it in Luke 14, he says, listen, the man who set out to build a tower, he's a fool if he doesn't step back and count the cost of what it will take to build that tower. Otherwise, he'll get halfway through and the tower will be incomplete and he'll be a, a, a mocking to everybody around him. If you're going to follow Jesus, it does require something. Count the cost. Know the cost. It's the awesome thing about doing it together as a people. That it's difficult, there's pain, there's suffering along the way. But the awesome promise of the gospel is that as we embark and on that journey and walk down that road, we don't do it alone. We do it with each other. He's with us. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I pray that you would um, just help us to be a people who, who put the cross um, in its proper place in our life, Lord. I pray that um, as difficult as it is to carry our cross and to die to ourselves, Lord, as tempted as we may be to hide it in a corner, Father, I pray that it would dominate our life. Lord, I pray that um, you would give us the strength, supernatural strength, when rejection, when pain, when suffering comes into our life as a result of carrying our cross, Lord. Father, and I pray that you would help us to be able to see um, the victory clearly and to know the joy deeply that comes along with this type of lifestyle, Lord. We love you and we ask these things in your name. Amen.